You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's July 16th. Last month, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA, determining that it could not restrict what student-athletes receive in education-related benefits, things like tutoring, graduate school scholarships, or paid internships. This case did not directly address the broader issue of whether student-athletes could be paid salaries, but Rand economist Jacova Williams says it may still be a transformative step toward allowing college athletes to access the income that their labor produces. In fact, it's looking more and more like the question will soon turn from if colleges should pay their athletes to how that might work. One potential model can be found in how universities treat PhD students, Williams says. Just like student athletes, PhD students receive tuition waivers, health benefits, and access to world class facilities, but they're also paid salaries. If college athletes were to receive salaries, then their labor hours could include game day labor and preparation for games. They could also sign contracts with the universities, just like PhD students do, and those contracts could include educational requirements, such as maintaining a certain GPA. The marketplace can easily manage to value salaries for college athletes, Williams says. This, too, already happens with Ph.D. students. For example, business school and STEM doctoral students receive higher salaries than those of English or history Ph.D. students because those programs bring in more revenue and their graduates are in high demand. According to Williams, the Supreme Court ruling may upend college athletics in ways that are overdue, but the model to pay athletes is, quote, simple labor economics. America has seen nearly 34 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and nearly 606,000 deaths. This high toll may be partly due to informal social gatherings that have not been subject to state and local restrictions. To learn more about the risk of these small gatherings, a new RAND study looked at whether COVID-19 rates increased in households in which a member recently had a birthday. Why birthdays? First, because they give people a reason to gather, perhaps even during a pandemic. Second, everyone has a birthday. That means that, given the right data, there are plenty of potential individual-level exposures to study. And third, birthdays happen throughout the year. That means they should be unrelated to other factors driving the pandemic. For these reasons, birthdays are an ideal, natural experiment that can help quantify the risks of COVID-19 when people gather. The study, which covers the period between January and November of last year, shows that in counties where COVID-19 transmission was high, the likelihood of infection in a household increased by about 30% in the two weeks after a member of that household had a birthday. This corresponds to an increase of 8.6 more cases per 10,000 individuals in households that had a birthday in the two weeks prior. Among households in counties with low COVID-19 transmission, there wasn't any increased rate of infection in the weeks following birthdays. This suggests an obvious but important link between the effect of social gatherings and the trajectory of the pandemic in a community. 
Overall, the findings highlight a tension of the pandemic era that may be particularly important for policymakers to consider as COVID-19 hotspots re-emerge in some parts of the country. Social gatherings are crucial to the fabric of families and to society as a whole. But in high-risk areas, these gatherings can also inflame the outbreak and expose households to COVID-19 infections. In the past, incoming college freshmen who were deemed not college-ready had to enroll in non-credit developmental classes before beginning college-level coursework in English and math. Many students ended up dropping out of these developmental classes before ever making it to the entry-level courses. But now, schools across the country are trying a new approach, co-requisite remediation. This allows students to enter college-level courses right away, while simultaneously receiving extra academic support, such as tutoring, an extra class session, or office hours. RAND research suggests that co-requisites can have a large positive effect on the percentage of students who pass entry-level math in English courses. And as states and colleges look to support students who were affected by pandemic-related school closures, co-requisites may be one way to help recover learning losses. Black babies born in the U.S. are more than twice as likely to die in their first year as white babies. In Pittsburgh, this disparity is even more stark. Three or four white babies and 15 black babies die before they turn one. To learn more about the root of this problem in the Pittsburgh area, RAND researchers set out to do something completely new. They linked birth certificate information from 150,000 births with electronic health records, social service registries, and neighborhood data points such as poverty rates and air quality readings. Their goal? Account for every risk factor facing every newborn baby. And then, identify the services and supports that would give each baby the best chance to thrive. Although the researchers didn't have names or other identifying information, they could see how many mothers had diabetes or experienced depression, They could see how many lived below the poverty line or smoked while they were pregnant. And they could also divide the data by racial demographics, maternal income or education, birth weight, neighborhood characteristics, or pollution levels. Some clear patterns emerged. For one, there was almost no overlap between women who relied on medical care, like prenatal checkups, and women who relied on more home-based or community care. This points to a wide-open opportunity for hospitals and social service organizations to coordinate their care and to make sure women get the best of both. The data also showed that nearly half of all infant deaths occurred in the first 24 hours after birth. The time to save those babies was in the months or even years before they were born, when the risk factors that would prove fatal to them were first accumulating. Early support, in fact, may be the most important takeaway. Every single intervention examined in the study was more effective the earlier it started. With hundreds of thousands dead and millions displaced, gross human rights violations, and economic collapse, the Syrian civil war, now in its 11th year, has been a disaster for the Syrian people and for neighboring countries. Just over a year ago, a powerful new U.S. law, called the Caesar Syrian Civilian Protection Act, was enacted to help reverse the tragic course in Syria. 
So far, the law has been used to levy sanctions that target Syrian ruler Bashar al-Assad and his networks, making it harder for them to profit from reconstruction activities. According to Rand's Howard Schatz, while the law has had significant influence on Assad's ability to claim complete victory in Syria, it has not been effective in forcing reform. In fact, the Caesar sanctions have actually hurt those they were intended to benefit, the Syrian people. This is often the case with sanctions, he says. Quote, On their own, sanctions rarely achieve their ostensible objective. And no matter how closely targeted, their impact tends to fall most heavily on the population as a whole. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.